Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Let me get there myself, and then we'll get started on this. Just one more moment. So, first of all, I do want to say it's good to see everybody here today. I know some of you have been away, you know, uh, working passes. We thank you for coming back. <laughs> okay. And we hope you had an awesome time. So I expect to hear some things from uh, you guys about your trip. Sound looked pretty interesting. And everybody else, if you're here, good to see you. God bless you. That being said, let's get uh, to God's word. We've been going through Ephesians, and we got to the fourth chapter. Paul, in the first three chapters, set forth some wonderful truths, doctrinal truths about what God has done, who he is, and how he predestined us, how he elected us, how he saved us, how he called us out of death into life. And then he calls us to live according to that. And then in chapter 4, 5, and 6, Paul makes application of those glorious truths so that we know, well, you know, what do they mean? I mentioned before, if you read John Chrysostom's sermons, they were preached in the 5th century in, in Constantinople, which is modern Istanbul. Um, and as he preached, about halfway or two-thirds through his messages, his homilies, uh, from what we could tell in the manuscripts, that they've been preserved. They actually wrote down his sermons, took them down, and then they've been preserved in histories, which is kind of neat to read sermons from the 5th century, but from uh, John. And Chrysostom means golden mouth, okay, because he was kind of like the Spurgeon of the 5th century, if you know who Spurgeon is. Uh, so they have his sermons, but about two-thirds through, he would stop and say, but what does all this mean? And then he would just go and just apply it. This is what it means to your life. So application, in one sense, we can't say it's everything, because without exposition of God's word, uh, application can't happen. So we have to know what Scripture says, but it's really important for us to make applications. Uh, I try not to frustrate people when I preach, you know, some of the most frustrating, what I consider frustrating sermons, and I probably preached a few, um, haven't done it intentionally, but when you tell people what they need to do, but you never tell them how to do it, you know, it's like if somebody's car's broken down and you go, you need to fix that. It's like, no kidding. Thank you. Great. Now I'm going to have a really rich life now because I now know what I already knew ahead of time. Thank you for telling me. And sometimes when we preach God's word, we tell people all their duties but we never tell them how it's done. And so we end up getting people pretty frustrated. That is if they're serious about their walk. Either that or they just give up and go, okay, I know what I should do, but apparently I, I don't know how to do it. Uh, Paul didn't do that, and we should neither. Paul not only told them the glorious truths of the gospel, he told them how to do it. In other words, what does this mean? Chrysostom wasn't doing anything except following the apostle Paul as he followed Christ. And that is he told, okay, what does all this mean? How should this affect you this afternoon? How should this affect you in your home? How should this affect you on the job or in your studies? Uh, whatever you're doing, how should this affect your relationships with each other, etc.? So that's what Paul's doing in the second half of Ephesians. So we're going to look at verses 17 through uh, 24 today because it's a pretty much a unit, but it all, you know, it's part of the whole, but we're going to look at this piecemeal. So, you know, we can, it's like when you eat, you know, you, I like a good steak, but, you know, 
you don't try to eat a whole steak in one bite. All right. And if you do, you're going to wish you had to. Okay. Yeah. What do you do? Little pieces. Okay. And then you can enjoy it and savor it. So that's what we're going to do. So Ephesians chapter four, verse 17, Paul writes to the Ephesian church and says, this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which, is, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Amen. Before we go on, let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask you to be with us now. Quicken us, enliven us in your word. Open your word to our hearts and minds, and open our hearts and minds to your word, Lord. Speak to us this day, we pray, from the Holy Scriptures, and write it in our hearts and minds. <clears throat> that when the question is asked, what does all this mean, Lord? We might be able to say, by God's grace, we understand what we need to do. And we understand what this means. So, Lord, bless us. Grant us this, we pray, for your glory and for the honor of your Son, Jesus Christ, and the honor of your name, Heavenly Father. Bless us, we pray. And I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations, the thoughts of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Okay, so we have this wonderful passage, uh, and there's some pretty interesting things being said. Uh, firstly, you know, he's, he's set forth all these glorious truths. He started earlier, chapter 4, verse 1. He said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And so he's really extending or expanding on that when we get to verse 17. He's talked about Christ's ascension, the unity uh, of the Spirit, and then he talked about the gifts that Christ has given in the various offices to minister the word to the saints so that they could do the work of the ministry, so that the body of Christ would be built up, and the body of Christ is you, God's people. You're each members of that. Everyone has gifts and graces, and uh, we can't say about any brother or sister in Christ that, well, they're really not needed, okay? You need your brothers and sisters. Your brothers and sisters need you. Uh, we're all part of the body of Christ. Christ has given you gifts that I don't have. You've given me a few gifts maybe that you don't have. But the point is, we all benefit from being in fellowship with each other and loving the Lord and loving each other. So it's vitally important for us. And the church is not just an addendum or an afterthought of God. It's the gathering of his people. Christ loved the church, it actually says, and gave himself for it. You know, So uh, Christ is the Savior of his people, and then collectively, you remember the word church, ecclesia, the called out multitude? Uh, that's us. We've been called by God's word, by the work of his spirit, so that we might love the Lord and walk with him. So Paul's saying this is true, and if you notice the last verse of, uh, or verse, last two verses of chapter 3, say, Not to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory. Where? In the church. He's not talking about the institution of the church. He's talking about the people of God gathered together. And we will say, organized according to the mind of God, according to what Christ taught. You know, local congregations with elders and deacons, that's taught clearly in the Bible. 
gathered together, loving each other and walking in fellowship and regularly gathering uh, to worship the Lord and to spend time with each other and encourage each other. But know what he says, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus. The church is nothing without Jesus. To all generations, forever and ever. Okay, so this isn't a temporary plan he has. Amen. Then he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And I mentioned before, you know, he's able to uh, do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And so, you know, that's where the prosperity gospel guys rush in and say, God wants you to be wealthy, healthy, and, you know, just to, you know, have, a, have your best life now, okay? Don't mean to pick on Mr. Olstein too much, but that's a pretty sad phrase, okay, for the, the title of his book. Um, but people teach that. They, they go to this verse. And so that's why chapter 4, verse 1 is there. Paul reminded them, God does answer your prayers above what you can ask or think. Oh, and by the way, I'm in prison right now because of Jesus, because I preached the gospel. So Paul's letting them know, you, all those who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So when we say God answers our prayers above what we can think, that's true. But that doesn't mean that you're going to be king of the world, all right? So, um, or, you know, have all the power and all the glory for you. God has a plan, and his plan, more often than not, includes suffering. But that's for our good and for his glory. But let's move down to verse 17, where he picks this up again. Uh, this is therefore I say, uh, I am saying, literally present tense, I am saying and testifying in the Lord. And this is, I went through the translated this from the original, uh, tried to bring out some things. Paul, he says, I am saying this and I am testifying, I'm bearing witness in the Lord that you all no longer are to walk uh, as the rest of the nations or the rest of the Gentiles are walking. You know, the nations walk in vanity. As he says, this you're not to do this. So Paul's going to tell them three things. In verses 17 through 19, he's going to tell them that what they were not to do. And he's going to tell them why. He says, okay, what you were, you no longer are. So don't walk according to what you were. Walk according to what you are. And we can get a little confused in that because we still live in the world. You know, if you're Gentiles, you still live in a Gentile culture. If you're, you're Jewish, let's say you lived in Israel, well, you're in a uh, Jewish culture. But if you're saved, you're part of the church, and the church is neither Jew nor Gentile. It's the body of Christ, and so there shouldn't be racial or uh, ethnic divisions among God's people. We should be walking as brothers and sisters okay, in Christ. A person has to be in Christ to do that. But he's saying, oh, I don't want you to walk. He's writing to a church made up primarily of Gentiles. He said, I don't want you to walk even as the rest of the Gentiles are walking. In case someone says, well, what does that mean? Well, here's what it means. This is what you're not to do. In the foolish vanity of their mind, the emptiness, okay, the Greek word means, you know, just, just that vain, void, you know, uh, when it says God created the heavens and the earth, uh, and the earth was waste and void, the Hebrew there is tohu vavohu, and uh, in seminary, sometimes when someone, after we'd had enough Hebrew to be dangerous, someone would be spouting off some great theological truth that they discovered the night before when they were doing foolish vanity of their minds, with their understanding having been darkened, okay? The light is shining. That's not the problem. The, the, their mind has been darkened, okay? They pulled the shade down as much as they could, but it was darkened in judgment also. Uh, having their mind darkened. Again, why? Well, they, they caused them to be estranged from the life of God. They didn't want to know God. They turned away from him. So their mind became dark. We're going to look at that in a little more detail in a moment. 
uh, because of the ignorance existing among them or in them, because of the callousness of their hearts. You know, that's the idea there, the hardness of their heart. The Greek carries the idea that it's hardened like a callous. Their minds became callous. The Bible speaks of having a seared conscience. You know, if you've ever gotten a bad burn, one thing you know, it pretty much, you know, if it's not, if it's too serious, you, you got a real problem. But where there's a burn, generally the nerves are destroyed. And so it, you know, if it's seared, it kind of gets an artificial callus on it or a different type with from the scar tissue. Well, that's the way the, the minds of the Gentiles are, those who are walking apart from Christ. This is the condition of the world right now. We look around and say, how on earth could things get so bad? Paul's telling us right here, this is what the Gentiles do. They walk in the foolish vanity of their minds with their understanding having been darkened. You know, look at this thing. Think of the people I mentioned in my prayer about abortion. How could anyone with any intelligence that's ever looked into what abortion is supported? Okay. Now, I don't encourage you necessarily to go look at the pictures of aborted babies. All right. Because it's sickening. It's like looking at pictures of the Holocaust. You know, and I, as a young man, when I was growing up, I thought we would never see anti-Semitism again in the world because of the photographs of the, the Holocaust. When they uh, went into the camps, Eisenhower told the photographers that were with him, take pictures of everything. And I'm not going to use the exact language he used because it was pretty strong because he was looking at the dead bodies and the emaciated people that were there that had been starved to death and just all the evil that had been done. And the guy said, why do you want pictures of everything? He said, because someday someone's going to deny that this happened. He said, I want to make sure they can't do that. And sure enough, what have we seen? You know, the Holocaust deniers and others. Uh, if you look at history, it happened. All right. And if someone wants to argue the extent or anything like that, well, whatever, it happened. It was horrible and bloody. The abortion industry murders babies. They cut them to pieces. And if you've ever seen the photographs, you know what I'm talking about. Like I said, don't go seek it out. It's sickening and it's heartbreaking. But when people, how could anyone be in favor of this stuff? Well, how about because their foolish minds have been darkened and their understanding is darkened. Uh, they're estranged from the life of God because of the ignorance that's among them, because of the callousness of their hearts. Their consciences are seared with a hot iron, it says. That's why they can do those things and think it's okay because they're dead inside. Uh, Paul says, that's the way you were, apart from God's call. That's the way the Gentiles were before the gospel came among them. And then he says, who having made themselves insensible, gave themselves over to unbridled lust and every kind of work of uncleanness and selfish greediness. So they're in a bad way. Paul says, you know, don't think you're exempt from that. That's what that if God hadn't come to you, it might have come to your parents so you would be spared from having experienced that. But if it hadn't been for Jesus, that's the condition you would have been left in. As you then approach the judgment throne of a holy God who hates sin. So he says, don't walk in that manner. Paul describes the condition of the depravity of the Gentile nations in Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. Um, and in this, by the way, this is an interesting passage of scripture because in England and in Canada, street preachers have been arrested for reading this out loud in public because it offended the uh, homosexual community because it condemns those types of wickedness and sins. But here's what God's word says. So, you know, if I get arrested, I'm not going to worry about it. Um, I think we're safe for now. But Romans chapter 1 at verse 18, this is what Paul describes in the, con the condition of the world before the gospel 
change things. It says, for the wrath of God, Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They hold it down. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. All right, so the revelation of God in the creation is absolutely clear. Well, why don't they see that? Well, because they're more willing to gouge out their eyes than to acknowledge that the Lord is God. That's why they hate God by their natures. They're estranged from him. Because, verse 21, Romans 1, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. He's talking about the historical development of this, this depravity. Nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. That's like what Paul says, their, their vain imaginations. Became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. They worship anything except the one true God. Uh, you know, in Egypt, the dung beetle is worshipped or was worshipped among them. You know, anything that moved, they think, oh, that might be that might be a God we need to, to you know, ask to help us. And so, uh, but when the Lord God himself destroyed Egypt because of their wickedness after Israel went out from everything we know in history. They went back to worshiping their demon gods. This is true in the other Gentile nations also. Uh, they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness. Note this. They turned their back on gods. And I heard one a preacher say years ago, you know, you think you might think it's funny to turn your back on God because all your friends are applauding you. He said, woe unto you the day when God turns his back on you. God said in Genesis before the flood, he said, my spirit will not always strive with man. God's mercies are infinite. His patience is limited. There is a time when God just gives the nations over to judgment. And that's why we need to pray for mercy for our own. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, to exchange the truth of God for the lie. What lie is that? That you can be like God. You don't have to go to God to find out what's true or not. That's what the devil told Eve. You know, you can be like God. You know, well, they already were like God. Satan got them to throw away what they possessed by making them think they didn't have it. But they did. And then by following Satan, they lost what they had. So, he's, you know, that's the way sin works. But they exchanged the truth of God for the lion, worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, note, again, God gave them up to vile passions. God doesn't make people sin. He simply withdraws his restraining influences, and then they go off the deep end. Okay? Um, so God gave them up to vile passions. He just left them alone. For their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to talk about the immorality that is enshrined and protected by law now in our country and touted as if, if you're against it, then you're a bad person. God says that those are damnable sins. 
And even verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, they hated any thought about God. What's it say? God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, children. Nope, I've mentioned this before. Nope, what that sin is listed with. Sometimes children think, oh, I don't have to do what my mom and dad tell me to do. Note where God puts that, the disobedience to parents in what list is it in? All these horrible, vile, damnable sins. Disobedient to parents. That's in their lawful commands is what he's talking about. Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Then here we see what's going on in our culture today. Who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, they know it in their heart of hearts. They can't bring themselves ever intellectually express it because they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But in their heart of hearts, they know they're sinning against God. That's why they hate any reference to God or any time a Christian tries to speak to call them out of their sin. They hate it unless God, the Holy Spirit, restrains their sin and calls them out by his power. But they know who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. You know, they have their parades. They, you know, applaud one another. And, you know, however vile, the more vile and wicked they are, the more they get praised. Anyone that speaks out against it is considered an evildoer and, you know, uh, some type of phobia or something they attach to it. He goes on and Paul basically says, beloved, I'm talking about your background culturally as Gentiles, uh, as God's now God's people, but before that, that was your condition. That was humanity. Had God just abandoned us by God's grace, he didn't. He called us. So Paul's telling them what they're not. That's super important, okay? The depravity of the Gentiles. They needed to know what they were not any longer and why. And that's what he's telling them here in the first part of Ephesians 4, uh, 17 through 19. But then he goes on in 20 and 21, and he tells them that by knowing Christ, they will know who and what they now are. You're not what you once were. You might say, well, I wasn't involved in all that stuff. Well, give God thanks because you were capable of it. God kept you from it, okay? You know, God spared you cultural influences. We call, you know, the common grace effect of special grace. God restrains sin and that's his mercy. But when it's not being restrained, well, you can look around in our culture today and see what happens when sin isn't restrained, all right? The nations that says shall be turned into hell and all, excuse me, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. That's Psalm 9. And we see this. It's like the powers of hell are just running rampant in our culture. But he wants them to know that because of Christ, by knowing him, they will know who and what they are. And in verse uh, 20, he says, but you were not so taught Christ. You, you were discipled in the gospel. You were instructed about who Jesus is, you know those former sins are wicked before God, and that's where repentance comes and forgiveness. And praise God, he's granted us repentance, he's granted us forgiveness. We are not what we once were. You know, we may come from a culture that, you know, like Pilgrim came from the city of destruction. 
you know, we can say that's where I'm from, but that's not, I'm not a citizen of that anymore. I'm a citizen of heaven, you know, the celestial city. And this is what Paul reminds him. He says, but you are not so taught Christ. If indeed you've, uh, you heard him, that is, you've been called, if you've really truly been called, and Paul's writing him, he's not saying, I don't know if you have been. He's writing saying, if indeed, you know, in other words, yes, I, you know, you now have been called by him. Uh, you've heard him and were instructed in him. You've been, you've been taught about who Jesus is, and that's the key. And he says, uh, even as the truth is in Jesus. <clears throat> so we can say our culture is so bad. Well, what should we be doing? You want to know what you should be doing? You need to start finding out who Jesus is. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the one that came and died for us, rose again. <coughs> Excuse me. He's the one who sent the Holy Spirit to work in us. He's the one that calls us out of darkness into life. He's the Savior, and the more we learn about him, we learn to follow him. True discipleship that comes about by the word of God being operative in our hearts by the Holy Spirit affects change in our lives. This is what Paul's saying. And note this beautiful statement. Even as the truth is in Jesus, he talks about Christ. <coughs> it's the same one. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. You were so taught Christ that as to his office as the anointed one, prophet, priest, and king. And just the person of Jesus, who he is. The truth is in Jesus. You want to know the truth? Study who Jesus is. He is the truth. And then he tells them, uh, you've heard this and you now know we are by knowing Christ. And that's what he's telling them. You've come to know Christ. So you're beginning to learn who you are. So you have to get that knowledge into your walk. You have to, if you're doing things that are displeasing to God, you've been forgiven and saved. God didn't save you because you keep the law perfectly. You always do what you're supposed to. But he's called you now out of sin. You know, Paul says in Romans 6, sin shall not have dominion over you. I quoted that in my prayer earlier. He didn't say it should not, which is true. He said it shall not. Sin is not going to win because Jesus died for your sins. His blood took away your sins. Sin cannot win. Death has been defeated you still have a struggle as long as you're in this body of flesh. We're waiting for our, you know, our regeneration when Christ returns, when our bodies will be transformed and will be saved body, soul, and spirit, as he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But right now our spirits have been born again. That affects our souls, our personalities, how we function. But we do have to contend with the flesh. Sometimes our attitudes and our appetites and lust and things like that, we've got to go to God and say, Lord, I need help. Okay, And that's why Jesus taught us to pray. And do not lead us into temptation. We need to pray that. But before that, he said, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, because we do sin. Uh, and Luke, says, forgive us our sins as we forgive our debtors. So we need to know who we are. And we learn who we, learn who we are by learning about Jesus, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's revealed in both Testaments. Okay. But then thirdly, he said, he's telling them in verse 22 through 24, don't be what you no longer are. Okay. You're no longer just some gentile you know slopping around out there in the world you belong to jesus christ you're a citizen of heaven you have a heritage uh, you have hope be who god has called you to be uh, our citizenship is in heaven we're told and so we need to recognize that we're, we're not what we were you don't be who you what you no longer are start being who and what you really are and that's what he's telling them in verse 22 he says uh, that you are to put off, according to your former manner of life, the old man who is corrupt or corrupted, according to the lust of deception. You know, 
Uh, lust has to do with intense desire. We see it manifested, you know, in the sexual realm, but sometimes it's in power or greed and all those things. It means intense desire. And I've mentioned this before. That word in Greek is epithumia. Okay, that means intense desire. It's not always a bad word. Intense desire is a good thing when it's in the right channels. Our Lord Jesus Christ used it right before the Last Supper when he told the disciples, with desire have I desired to eat this supper with you before I suffer. To eat this supper with you. He, with intense desire, he longed for that. He, he wanted to have that Last Supper with him before he entered into his, his sufferings for us. And so intense desire is not a bad thing. And I've mentioned this before because the permeation of a lot of Eastern thought in our culture and even in the church, the idea, you know, Buddhism says you must empty yourself of all desire, you know, uh, and then for whatever reason. And I think I told you what my son said to a Buddhist practitioner one time when he asked him, he said, what do you have to do to do this? And that guy named off all the disciplines that a Buddhist must do to get rid of desire. And I said, you got to do all that stuff? He goes, oh, yes, every day. And I said, wow, you must really have to want it then, huh? And the guy just stopped and looked at him. And I've shared this with you before, I know. Um, but the guy looked at him and Noah just kind of smiled. Said, you can't get away from desire. That's the whole, you know, we're, made, we're creatures of desire. We're supposed to desire God. So you don't have to, like, become, you know, a, a non-entity. Learn to desire the right things. Learn to desire the good things problem with sin and corruption is we, we go after stuff that we shouldn't, okay? And, you know, we make decisions that are bad. And like I've said before, you get to control your decisions up to a point, and then your decisions control you. So you want to make the right decisions before God. And if you made a whole bunch of bad decisions, well, that's where repentance comes and prayer. You say, Lord, help me, okay? Lord, help me. Deliver me from my sins. But here's what he says. You're to put off the old man, okay? Don't, don't live that way. That's not who you are. You may have a struggle with sin, but that's not who you are. Sin's not going to win out. You belong to Jesus. So you can recognize your past, and you can say, left to myself, I'm a miserable wretch. And I know that. Christ gets all the glory, 100%. There is absolutely nothing in me that I can point to and say, I did this, and that's why God saved me. What I have to say is I did nothing. Christ called me out of death. I was spiritually dead. That's what he told them in Ephesians 2, remember? I was dead and he saved me. So he says, put off that old man, which is corrupted according to the deceitful lust. And he says and that you be renewed or renewingly refreshed, actually is the idea, in the spirit of your mind. That's where the battle goes or goes on. Uh, Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Don't trust your heart. Go to God's word. In Romans chapter 12, we, you know, we kind of looked at Romans as a commentary on some of these things in Ephesians. In Romans chapter 12, very familiar text. I think you know, this is uh, at Bible camp. This usually is where this gets quoted. Uh, it's usually at least one message in Bible camp for, for people every year. Uh, verse uh, 1, uh, Romans 12, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So even though we say, well, my body's not yet been regenerated, I've not been resurrected yet, I still have to contend with you know appetites and lust and things like that. I can't say, well, you know, like the Gnostics said, well, you know, you just flesh in this world, it's just mud, hair, and filth, so it's okay if you go ahead and let your body just sin. Uh-uh. That's not taught in the Bible, as the truth is in Jesus. Your body belongs to God. 
The Holy Spirit is in you. He's working in you. You may have a struggle with sin, but that's just what it is. If you're alive, it's a struggle. Okay. If you're just going along with it like a dead fish bobbing up and down on the current. Okay. Well, something's wrong, huh? You're the living fish point into the current. They're alive. They go against it. And if you're alive in Christ, you're going to stand against sin in yourself and in the world. So he says, give your bodies, a, present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice. I remember the first time I heard it, someone, young lady said one time years ago, the only problem with living sacrifices is they keep crawling off the altar. <laughs> okay. Um, and I didn't forget that. I was a young man when I heard it. And it's like, yeah, that's the problem. But present your bodies a living sacrifice to God, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world. We just read about what the world is, man. I don't want that. Sin is ugly and filthy and vile. Okay, that's why they have to run advertising campaigns to convince you, that, oh, it's really good. Okay, no, it's not. It's evil and it brings death. But he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. No, by the renewing of your mind. Note that. Okay, a lot of people put a lot of emphasis on physical health, and you should. Okay, your body belongs to God. You're supposed to take care of yourself. Put some emphasis on your mind, all right? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you do that? Well, I've said that. I'm not just going to tell you to do something, but how to do it. You want to know how to renew your mind? Get your Bible open. Pray. Ask God, Lord, renew my mind. Put your word in my heart and mind. You're going to have to read your Bible. When I told you you're going to have to do things, didn't say I was going to do it for you. Okay, there's some things. If I told you to eat food, I can't eat it for you, okay? You have to eat it. God's word, you know, your, your word is the, the bread of life. So read God's word. That's how your mind gets transformed, renewed. It's by the work of the Holy Spirit through the word of God, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So Paul says, here's what you need to do, and here's how to do it. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. This is what he's saying. That you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, back in Ephesians 4.23. Okay, so our minds need to be renewed. And to start being clothed by putting on the new man, who are you? You're a new creature in Christ. That's who you are. All right. That's not phony. That's who you really are. And you need to start being what you are. God has called you to be his child. He's redeemed you by the blood of his son. He's given you his Holy Spirit to work in you and to never leave you nor forsake you. And he's going to bring you into his very presence when Christ returns and you'll be raised. If you're alive, when he comes, you'll be transformed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. But if you die before that, he's going to raise your body up. You'll be reunited with your spirit and you'll be perfect. You'll have the same you know, type of body that Christ has now, resurrected, never to die again. You'll be in his presence for all eternity. He knows how to do that. That's who you are. You are a child of God. You belong to the king. You don't belong to the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's why we fight against those things in ourselves and in our culture and in the church if they try to come in. So start being clothed, put it on. That's who you are, the new man, created according to God in righteousness and holiness of the truth, or in uh, righteousness and true holiness. In Colossians, Paul says that we're uh, to be renewed in the image of God in, in true knowledge, and that's that word epigenosis, experiential knowledge. And those three things, righteousness and true holiness and knowledge, that kind of constitutes the image of God in man. And that's what God's doing in you. Back in Romans chapter 8, at verse 28, we all know the text that we, we love because it's, it's such an encouragement. And we know that all things work together for good. That is unto this end of being saved and sanctified. 
All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined, what? To be conformed to the image of his son. That's what God's doing in your life. He's conforming you to the image of Christ. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So God's at work in us, renewing us in righteousness. That means walking justly. What does the Lord require of you but to love mercy and to do justly and to walk humbly with your God? That's Micah chapter 5. And holiness. And that word holiness there, it's a, it's a different word. It's not used. Uh, in the, the word hagias is usually the word that's used. This is a word that means piety. It's practical holiness. It means doing the things that holiness requires, doing your duty as Christians. Okay, And then true knowledge or knowledge, epigenosis, experiential knowledge, knowing who God is. So Paul calls them, not to some strange thing, he calls them, be who you are, not what you were, and recognize that. So uh, today's lesson here, the application is, go to Jesus Christ, learn about him. The key to this is verses 20 and 21. You have not so learned Christ in regard to you know wickedness. That's not what Christ teaches us. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus. If you want to grow spiritually, start praying. Go to Jesus. Say, Lord Jesus, I want to know you. Remember Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 11 uh, that, well, let's read it so we get it right, and then we'll close with that, all right? Matthew chapter 11. And this is our Lord's invitation to us to grow spiritually, I believe. All right, so first Jesus thanked well, the only one that can thoroughly know the Son is God the Father, because Christ is both God and man. So the only way you can know an infinite, eternal being is to be infinite and eternal. So ultimately, no one knows the Son except the Father. But then he says, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. To have any knowledge of the Father, Christ knows the Father perfectly. And the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. I was talking with a brother yesterday, and we talked about this. Your knowledge of God is exactly what Jesus wants you to have. You know as much about God as the Lord Jesus Christ wills for you to have. Note what he says. No one knows the Father except the Son, and he to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Jesus is the one that reveals the Father. So if you want to know God, you have to go to Jesus. Okay? Here's a good thing. What did we go? Oh, well, yeah, but why would the Lord want to know what he says? The very next thing Jesus says is, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That invitation is in the, it's in the context of knowing God the Father. Jesus says, you can't know the Father except through me. Jesus is saying that. You can only know the Father through Jesus. And the next thing he says is, come to me. What's he telling you? You want to know God? Go to Jesus. And say, Lord, I want, to, I want to know God. I want to know the Father. You're the revealer of the Father, Lord Jesus Christ. Please reveal the Father to me. I want to know him more. Do that for all of us. But, Lord, you're the one that my knowledge of God is dependent upon your will, Lord Jesus. And you are more willing to bless me than I'm willing to be blessed. Jesus, the next thing he says is, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give yours. Take my yoke upon you. And what? And learn from me. Learn what? Learn who the Father is. Learn who your God is. Learn who you are in the reflection of that truth. As we look to God, we see God manifested and glorified in the face of Jesus Christ. And we're changed from glory to glory, he says in 2 Corinthians. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Christ gives us life and, and light and his yoke is easy. But he says, come to me. So instead of tell you what you need to do and then tell you how to do it, Jesus tells you how to do it right here. Come to Jesus. Pray to him. Call upon him. Say, Lord, I want to know God. I want to be the person you want me to be. I'm tired of slip sliding around. Like one guy said, the rocks never move, but I've been slipping and sliding on the top of it for a long time. Say, Lord, give me stability. I want to know the Father. I want to. I want my life to matter for you. I want to glorify you in my life. And I don't really know how to do it, but I know you can bring that about. Lord, I want to be your person. I want to be your man or your woman, depending on what you are. Um, do it, Lord, because I can't do it without you. You're the only one that can give me a true knowledge of God. So, beloved, we already know what to do. Come to Jesus. That's what he said. He invites you to come to him. You, and he is the Savior. So we can't get a more gracious invitation than that. So let's go before the Lord in prayer right now. Okay, let's pray. We pray, Lord, that you do this work in us. As you've stirred up our hearts this day, and hopefully, Lord, by your word and spirit created a desire in us to know you more fully. We pray that you would fulfill that desire in such a way that you receive all the glory and praise and uh, that we receive the benefit, Lord. We're asking for that because we believe that you've, you've offered us that. Lord Jesus, we want to know the Father. Heavenly Father, we want to know you and your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to walk according to what we are, not according to what we once were, but according to your call in our life. And Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that you have to do this for us. You're our strength. You're our power. But we thank you that you have, you're with us. You've promised to never leave us nor forsake us. And so we ask all these things, Father, in Jesus Christ's name, thanking you. Amen.